Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Um, this is uh, Wes coming to you from an undisclosed location here. We're on lockdown in Washington State, trying to limit our exposure, and I thought it was a good time to reflect on uh, social contract and uh, how this coronavirus issue reflects on that and some of the philosophical and sort of sociological issues going on. I figure I have a little free time. A lot of you out there have a little free time, so let's have a ponder on uh, what's going on, but from a bigger, uh, more historical, philosophical position rather than from the details. Easy to get lost and sort of depressed and fearful in the details. I thought it might be interesting to take a big step back and think about what this might mean um, for us in the grander historical perspective. Uh, a couple of notes, and this, like I said, I want to focus on the social contract issues of this, because I think I haven't really seen or read anything about that yet. Um, but it is, uh, for me, one of the underlying most fascinating developments that we're, gonna, we're about, to, about to experience here as we ride along in the waves of history. Um, but first, I think one thing to note, to get a sort of a concept of, of part of what's happening is, uh, curiously, all over the United States and all over the world, actually, governments are asking their citizens to please, uh, you know, more or less stop doing what they do. This is historically unprecedented. And, and also historically unprecedented is the people are sort of going along. I mean, it's imperfect, but without, with really only small amounts of state use of direct force, and with only what seems to be, you know, there are problems, we're imperfect, we don't do everything right. Um, but people are going along with this voluntarily. By the way, this is the sign of the social contract, that people are doing things not because they're being forced to, but because more or less they kind of agree to it, right? You think, okay, I don't want to, but I probably should. Um, and so this is, this is why it came to my mind that this is a great moment to ponder the social contract. And in this case, what we're being asked to do is to basically suspend our lives and destroy our economies uh, and sort of move into this incredibly unknown zone so that the most vulnerable people in our societies, the elderly and the sick, will not die of a disease that apparently, at least so far, is not terribly dangerous for most middle-aged and young people who are healthy. And you know what? People are going along with this. This is, this is extraordinary. So I, I want to give some points to humanity. It's easy to shake your head at humanity and look at all our woeful uh, failings and the horrible things that we do and all this. But, you know, I'd like to point out that by and large, it looks like 90, 95% of people are happily going along with this massive transition and sacrifice for the most vulnerable people in a society. That, you know, it's impressive. It really is. And again, it shows the strength of the social contract that we would be willing to do this. Um, also, to put this in historical perspective, and since sort of uh, China is, is ground zero here, uh, you know, it's easy to criticize Xi, and I'm certainly not going to defend him on any grounds, but notice historically, in, you know, Mao Zedong and the Great Leap Forward systematically starved tens of millions of Chinese. Uh, citizens in an attempt to modernize the economy. Now you fast forward to today and in an attempt to protect the people, to attempt to stop the spread of this virus and the death of Chinese citizens, uh, Xi and the Communist Party did the opposite. To protect the people, they're sacrificing the economy. And, and they're not confused. They don't know how bad it's going to be. Bad. 
but they've decided, and, and just as we are in many France and Germany and Italy and all over the world, people are saying, you know what, we would rather sacrifice our economy and in fact the kind of strange lives that we're going to be leading um, rather than just go, oh well, whatever, let a few 10 million old people and sick people die um, and then we'll just keep going on with business as usual. Um, so that, that's an extraordinary, so it's 50 years later, 60 years later, um, and a complete reversal of attitude that uh, signals, you know, again, I think, you know, give credit where credit's due to uh, ourselves. People seem to be really, um, for the time being, uh, embracing this concept and, and going with it. And so, you know, it is, I think it's a fascinating uh, aspect of the social contract that we're seeing expressed. And it shows an underlying, cha underlying change in values that has taken place, particularly among the uh, political elites uh, in most of the world, who, are, who, who f maybe for their own self-interest no longer feel it is good to simply sacrifice your people in mass to achieve economic or political goals. So, you know, that, that's a dramatic shift. So, so I'm going you know, to start there. Keep that in mind. That's a, a, a really a truly remarkable change um, that we're seeing. Um, a, a, another example you could use, certainly much less severe, is when prohibition was passed, people did not stop drinking alcohol. The government passed a law, um, and basically they just created this huge underground economy for the consumption of alcohol because the social contract people did not feel that they needed to buy into this. They were, not, they, they, they were not on board with it. They thought it was silly for the government to try to do this. They wanted to make money. They wanted to drink alcohol. And so, you know, eventually the government had to back off on that. Um, and, and by the way, the government used a lot of force to try to make that happen. There was a great deal of, uh, of you know, state force used against citizens to try to enforce the crackdown on the consumption of alcohol. And it was completely, you know, basically didn't work and so they eventually had to repeal it so again early days yet but uh, so far it is a, in the in the immediate expression uh, people seem to have this great sense of solidarity and, and communal concern so uh, that's a one fascinating development uh, another aspect of this is the level of unknownness that we're now entering I've seen a couple of articles where people have said, oh, this, you know, the government's kind of nationalizing the economy or whatever. Well, that's, this is completely inaccurate. Or they said, oh, we're going into a war economy. We're not doing that either. Um, it, these, they're, I'm trying, I can't really find a historical parallel because usually what happens when a government, you know, nationalizes an economy, what they're trying to do is take over productive capacity for their own purposes, whatever that is. They think they can make more money by doing that or in a war economy, you're doing it to produce war material, to fight your enemies. Um, you know, there's what you're trying to do is focus and increase productive capacity towards the interests of uh, your society. Um, you know, this is something completely different. The government is taking over the economy, and it's not even really doing that. It's, it's basically simply telling the economy to stop. It's saying uh, that, you know, half, let's just say half, half the, the, the goods and services that you're used to consuming, um, restaurants, bars, hotels, travel, uh, airline tickets, schools, school-related expenses, um, you know, gas for traveling, going to work, all the ex expenses associated with going to work. Just stop doing that. 
We're not going to do that anymore for, for, for some unspecified period of time, hopefully a short period of time, but we don't know, right? so that's the miracle. So our government, not just our government, U.S., all over the world, China, you know, again, Italy, Germany, um, governments are actually stopping their economies. They're suspending the activity of the economy. And they know it's going to be bad, but they don't know how bad. Um, and I think the, this is illustrated over the last couple of days because on Friday, Secretary Munchen said he didn't think we were necessarily going into a recession, which was, of course, hilarious. We're already in a recession. Um, and I, I think he found out very quickly. Um, and then over the weekend, something happened to make him realize, by the way, not, not to pick on the Republicans particularly, although that's easy to do, but the House passed a, an emergency bill that included $8 billion of spending, which is just ridiculous. I mean, it's good. Some of the provisions are fine, but it's just so out of scale with what's happening. It just shows that both that the, the political system is not really prepared for this, and really, how could they be? Um, so over the weekend, the Federal Reserve sort of, um, somebody called them. I'll be interested to see in the history books what exactly triggered them to go, hey, wait a second. Um, and they announced on Sunday that they were going to do basically everything that the Federal Reserve could do, which is cut interest rates to essentially zero and put uh, $750 billion, which brought the amount of money they had pumped into the credit markets to about $1.5 trillion in about five days. Now, this is essentially the Federal Reserve saying, we'll give you infinite money and we will put interest rates to as low as roughly they can go. And the markets went limit down because they did not feel that this was sufficiently adequate um, uh, um, steps taken to address the crisis that we're in. And so uh, that got people's attention. <laughs> you know, that got the leaders were like, hey, wait a second, what's going on here? And um, what, what, what's going on, of course, is what they're grappling. As we speak right now, um, they're talking about a $1 trillion rescue package and $1 trillion of uh, fiscal money coming from the government to people. That sounds like a lot, and that is a lot of money. But again, it'll be interesting to see. So if, if, if that ends up being even remotely enough, it probably won't be. Um, I was trying to come up with some corollaries. But just if so, again, in the time span, at some point last week, the House of Representatives decided to pass an emergency bill to help with this coronavirus issue, um, paid leave, all this stuff, and, and $8 billion. And by Friday, the Treasury Secretary is saying, hey, it doesn't look like we're going to be in a recession. On Sunday, the Federal Reserve did every possible thing. I mean, they just pulled out all their tools, spent all the money, just said unlimited support for the markets, yay. And the, and the markets collapsed um, all by Tuesday. So this is just Tuesday. So this is this, this is like a week. The $8 billion that were going to be so helpful for stuff has now become a trillion. Um, and it's pretty clear that trillion is going to be the first of many trillions um, that are going to have to be spent. Um, just as, as an example, the GDP, this is, of course, this is older numbers, hard to get exact, but a rough estimate for the Great Depression between 1929 and 1933, which was sort of the depths of the Great Depression, uh, the GDP fell by 30%. So we lost 30% of our GDP in, in you know, four-ish years, three and a half, four years. Right now, it looks, I mean, it's no one has the numbers, but if you can do some back-of-the-envelope calculations and guesstimate that our GDP has probably shrunk by close to that in a month, maybe two months. 
So something probably we're looking at a GDP shrinkage in a month or two, equivalent to the GDP shrinkage over four years of the Great Depression. Um, and since our economy is, say, give or take $20 trillion, um, that, would, that would mean that the uh, government, to make up for that shrinkage, would need to inject something on the order of, you know, $6 trillion uh, into the economy, uh, more or less directly. So the $1.5 trillion into the credit markets is sort of helpful, but not that helpful, apparently. Um, and so we might be looking at something like the necessity of punching in another, oh, you know, four or five trillion dollars over the next couple of months, which of course puts us in totally uncharted territory. Nobody knows what that would mean. Uh, everyone's kind of stunned at the trillion dollar number, but we'll see. I mean, who knows, but it's probably the first of, of many payments. Um, so that's the kind of the technical background of, of what's happening um, a little bit, but consider this. So why are people going along with this? Well, again, back to where we started, social contract. We've entered this un familiar territory. People are playing along nicely. So far, very little use of state force to make this happen. Ah, a contract is a deal between two parties. And I think one of the reasons the trillion dollar number came up so quickly is because the government somehow has figured out that part of the contract is we, if we tell people to stay home and not work, well, our implicit contract is we're going to make that right for them. We're going to make good on the uh, costs, uh, at least part of them, a significant part of them, so that people feel like, hey, I made a sacrifice, but everybody made a sacrifice. We did this together, and that the government also made a sacrifice and helped me out and helped my friends out and helped the people I know out so that, you know, we feel good. The converse of this is if people feel like the government is not doing enough, if people feel like they're being unfairly burdened, then a couple of possibilities will open. Then the social contract begins to break down. So at this point, people will begin to not voluntarily sequester themselves. They'll say, you know what, forget this. I'm no longer going to bear the psychological, financial, personal costs of uh, putting myself in sort of semi-quarantine or limiting my social, you know, social distancing, all of these other aspects, I'm going to try and go about my normal life. At this point, the government would be in the unpleasant position of having to decide whether they want to try to impose force um, to achieve their ends. And, it's, ah, and this is the problem when the social contract starts to break down. If the local police felt sympathetic to local populations, and of course it would be local police that were doing this, um, then at some point they would just throw up their hands and say, you know what, we kind of agree with our, we, we agree with our friends and neighbors that we really can't force them to just starve at home or whatever, whatever the, uh, the notion is. Uh, another, uh, it just, just popped in my head, um, you can look at the siege of Leningrad where there was really, really strict rationing. People were starving to death, really strict rationing, all this, and there was a fair use of force, but by and large, the people of Leningrad pulled together to get through that because they knew they were in it together. They didn't feel like they were being unfairly burdened. It's not like their neighbors were doing fine and they were suffering, or there was, or that they knew that everybody, 
or they felt that everybody was doing everything they could to improve the situation. The situation was just essentially, you know, inhuman and unmanageable. And so, okay. So, you know, if somehow that feeling breaks, then the state would have to begin to resort to increasing amounts of force. And it basically, I'm not sure that would be tenable. Um, historically speaking, then, this would also lead to a situation where, uh, you, you know, this is, this is, this is the stuff of, of kind of either social transformation or revolution, where the state has set itself on, on a path that the people just absolutely 100% refuse to go down for whatever reason. And so I think one reason we're seeing the rapid uh, recognition in Washington, although one would have thought this would have been clear earlier, but nonetheless, a week is not a bad turnaround time, given, you know, politics and all that. Um, is there going, oh, wait, look, hold on. Um, yeah, the people are, they'll, people will get really angry. I mean, and not angry in the sense of, wow, they aren't going to vote for us in November, although that's clearly on their minds, but angry in the sense of, this is a systemic threat to the system. If someone, you know, might lose their house because they were told not to work, <clears throat> this this gets, now we're like, okay, wait a second. Shouldn't we be freezing mortgage foreclosures? Maybe we should be freezing mortgage payments, right? We just say, look, if you can't work, if millions and millions of Americans can't really effectively work, well, then we're just going to have to say there's no mortgage payments until this cleans up. These sorts of options I think we're going to be kicked around and you'll see them on the table if they're not already on the table very soon. Um, you, in, in Canada there was a speech by uh, the Prime Minister Trudeau where he said no Canadian is going to have to worry about eating or paying the rent. Now, Which is I think exactly the message that he has to send. I think this is the necessary message. Um, but will people receive it and then will the action follow and how quickly will the action follow? That, I think, is going to be telling because this is one of those interesting situations where if we all feel good, we all feel like we're in it together, and we feel like the government is taking actions to offset and mitigate the problems that they are creating and the virus is creating, then I think people will feel good. If not, it will be one of these interesting test cases that the social contract will begin to break down. Um, so yeah, that's just some, some quick thoughts I, I had. So I was taking some notes and I thought, you know, this is a fascinating test case. But so far, and again, credit to people all over the world. This is a, you know, it's not a great moment for people's lives, but it is sort of a shining moment for humanity that so many people, billions essentially of people, have voluntarily more or less agreed to sort of sacrifice themselves on behalf of our most vulnerable. And that, you know, that's, that's, that's very impressive. I really, I, you know, it's, it's moving. Um, and that governments all over the world are trying to do the same thing. It, it suggests, you know, if you look at the 19th century, 18th century, 17th century, you know, this is not what governments were doing. They, they weren't even trying, however ineffectively. Uh, this was not like what they thought, saw their goal as or their role. Um, and so it does point to a major shift over the last hundred years or so. Um, and, you know, it's an interesting thing to be a part of. So I'll be, I'll be doing more of these. Uh, if people are waiting for the next lecture in the German series, I will be recording that at home because, of course, we can't have gatherings. So, um, but that will go up on schedule. Hannah Arendt will be up um, on Thursday of this week. So I hope you guys are all well out there. 
and taking some time to reflect and meditate because it seems like we're going to have some time. So be well, and I'll have some more material up soon. Thanks for listening.